Good morning. It is so, well, thank you. It is so great to be back with everybody again. And I very much missed last week. You kind of feel like you miss a lot when you miss the first week. So that's kind of how I'm feeling a little bit right now. But I just wanted to thank you all so much for praying for Sierra. Baby Amelia was born on Monday morning, uh, a big whopping nine pounds, 12 ounces. So, yes, Sierra said she likes to do things in extremes because Jace was 3'9", and Amelia is 9'12". So anyways, there we go. And she's just so sweet. And you can pray for, of course, you know, the whole new baby thing. Baby's up all night, sleeps all day, no sleep for mama and daddy. So anyways, but other than that, they're doing well. I do have a couple of announcements. A couple of things that we need... For one, Kathy is here to serve coffee for everybody, and I realize we're just at the tail end of summer, so it's not quite cold yet, but did you feel the cool air the last couple of mornings? It's coming. So Kathy is back there making coffee, and Joan will actually be back there as well. So please help help yourself to coffee when you get here in the mornings, and also... If you're headed out and there's still coffee left, please take a cup to go because if you don't, it just goes down the drain. So enjoy the coffee. The other thing is we could really use a greeter or two for setting out the name tags every Friday morning. And I say two because it's always nice to have somebody that you can tag team with so that you don't have to be the only one there. Basically what that entails is setting up the table and uh, laying out the name tags and just being there to answer questions, to greet ladies as they come in. So if you would be interested in doing that, I would love to talk to you. So please um, see me if you're willing to do that. The other thing Wendy had asked me to mention to you guys as well, and this the signs have actually been there for a long time on that side street by the annex, and, you know, we pretty much have all ignored it for years and years and years, where it says one-hour parking, 8 to 5. Well, apparently, maybe, I'm, I'm thinking the reason why she's letting me know this, she said that the police just put up new signs, but the signs have always been there. But I think they're cracking down on that. So if you do not want to get a ticket, I would advise not parking there. So anyways, I think that's all. Oh, and I also did, I don't know, I know Rachel announced this to you last week, and I'm not sure if there was anybody that wasn't here, but we are doing verses this year to go along with our lessons. So out in the front, we had verse one and verse two. You'll get a new verse every week, and you can just put them on the little binder rings like this. And in our small groups, we will review them. That's very loose, okay? So don't have panic attacks. We aren't going to make you quote anything, but hide God's word in your heart. Why do we do that? Because... Exactly. So we will not sin against him. If you do not have God's word hidden in your heart, you will sin against God, period. That's it. And so we felt like we aren't doing you any service to not encourage you every week to be hiding God's word in your heart. So the last thing is our little bookmarks here. And this has on the back of it, I'm sure Rachel already explained to you, but this has our objectives for what we're doing. If you were here last year, you would have gotten one of these, but, um, We just want to keep fresh in our mind. What is the purpose of Bible study? Why do we do this every week? Why do we meet in small groups? And so this is just to help us stay all on track together. So anyways, grab one of those if you didn't get them. And I'm going to open in prayer. I think that's everything. And we'll get started. 
Father, we are so grateful to be here again, starting a new year with a whole book of study before us. And Lord, particularly as we look into the topic of psychology this week, I thank you for Martha Peace. I thank you for her research. I thank you for her wisdom. I thank you for the truth that she shares with us. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be pricked, that we would grow in our understanding so that we will not be idolaters because ultimately that's what it is. I pray that you would help me as I speak to the ladies this morning, that you would help my thoughts to be clear, that I would communicate clearly, excuse me, and that by your spirit you would give us understanding and not understanding in the sense of knowledge, but understanding to change so that we will no longer be enslaved to our sin because we have been set free, even as we were singing this morning, that nothing but the blood, we have been saved by the blood of Christ. Oh, Father, please help us to rejoice in that, help that to be the reason that we get up in the morning, the reason that we seek to please you, to glorify, to honor you, because you have sent your son to pay the ultimate price for our sin. Lord, let us never, ever, ever forget that. In your name we ask all these things. Amen. So I'm going to begin this morning by sharing a portion of a newsletter written by Ken Ham, who, if you know anything about him, he is the founder of Answers in Genesis, who has been very helpful to Craig and I over the years, particularly as we were raising our kids and trying to help them understand creation versus evolution and all that kind of thing. So I'm going to read what he wrote in this newsletter. And I want you to keep in mind that he wrote this 10 years ago just because he gives a couple of numbers and dates in there. So anyways, he starts with this. Before my wife, Mally, and I moved to the USA in 1987 with our four young children, our church in Australia set us apart as missionaries in creation, evolution, not evolution, creation, evangelism. We better get that straight. (laughs) Okay. Our church actually saw us as missionaries to the USA. Over the years, I would begin my presentations in the U.S. churches something like this. My wife and I and our children moved to America as missionaries to a pagan culture. Yeah. Usually, people laughed out loud at the comment. After all, there are so many churches, Bible colleges, Christian radio stations, etc. in America that you wouldn't normally think of someone being called to be a missionary to the U.S.A., I have noticed a change in this nation in the last few years. Today, when I tell an audience at a conference or church that Mally and I came to America as missionaries to a pagan country, I don't hear as many people laughing anymore. Instead, I sometimes hear words like, thank you, or amen, and so on. You see, more and more people in the church today are recognizing that America is becoming increasingly pagan every day. This nation has all but abandoned God and his word. In fact, in many ways, the USA has shaken its fist at God in defiance of his word on such issues as gay marriage, abortion, etc., etc., etc. Since the call that God placed in our hearts over 25 years ago to become missionaries to America, I have always said that our calling was not primarily to the culture as a whole, but to the church. 
I earnestly believe the call on our lives was to be missionaries to the American church, and our first priority was to get the church back to the authority of the word of God. God has ordained the church to be the salt and light in the culture so that people would hear the truth of God's word and the gospel. But the scripture states the following. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt loses its flavor when it is contaminated. Sadly, much of the salt in the American church today is contaminated with secular beliefs. I have been speaking in the USA for over 30 years now with this major message. God's people need to stand on the truth of God's word beginning in Genesis 1-1 and not compromise with the secular religion of the day, evolution, and millions of years, and many other things as well. In fact, I've often said that we need to call for a reformation in the American church, that Christian leaders and God's people in the church need to repent of compromise and return to the full authority of the word of God. So there have been many ways that the modern American Christian has compromised the truth of scripture. As Ken Ham described, false teaching has infiltrated the church by promoting evolution rather than a six-day creation. In addition to this heresy, there have been, as you know, there have been numerous, numerous others. Interestingly, so apparently it was um, the week of being 10 years behind because I was also, Craig and I just happened to decide to listen to an interview with R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur from 10 years ago. This was just a few nights ago. And uh, as I was listening to what they were saying, they were kind of talking about the same idea. And John MacArthur said this, the church basically suffers from spiritual AIDS. You could die of a thousand heresies because its immune system is so totally deficient. There's an inadequate understanding of the nature of God and an inadequate understanding of the nature of Christ. Sproul added to MacArthur's comment, and he said this. Forty-some years ago, someone asked me what I thought the biggest problem in the church is today. I said, I think the biggest problem in the church today is that we don't know who God is. That flows over into every other dimension. We do not know who God is. And the sad reality is that many of us, I think, need to take responsibility for the fact that we don't know who God is because we are not pursuing that knowledge. We are not studying. This is not our life purpose and our life goal to do that. And it must be. False teaching that endeavors to contradict scripture and diminish God's character is not a new strategy. So in my daily Bible reading, I was reading in Jeremiah 14 earlier this week as well. The false teachers were contradicting Jeremiah's message that God was going to destroy the the Israelites through famine and war. And remember what he was prophesying. The Babylonians were going to come in and destroy them. And so this is what Jeremiah is prophesying because this is what God, this is the message that God has given him. But right there. In chapter 14, and I'm not going to read it to you, but these false teachers promoted the lie that God was going to give the Israelites lasting peace. 
And how interesting that this has never changed throughout hundreds and thousands of years. False teachers are always coming in and distorting the truth, twisting the truth, so that we will be led astray. Satan has always sought to twist, pervert, and dilute the truth through falsehood. He is the father of lies and has mastered the art of distorting the truth in whatever way is most appealing to those he is attempting to lead astray. In the same way that he influenced Eve to question the character and motives of God in the garden, he still uses the same strategy today. It is not by mistake that we don't have a good understanding of God. By distorting the character of God through false teaching, believers are led astray and churches become ineffective. In our reading this week, Martha Peace described the dangers of what? Psychology. You know I've been working up to something. And I've been working up to psychology here. (laughs) Because these are horrible, horrible lies that are promoted. And as churches, and I know that in our church we are constantly fighting against it. That's why we have the counseling ministry and all of that. But the, the American, the modern American church has swallowed and believed and digested and lived out of many of the humanistic teachings of psychology. And it is destructive, absolutely. <clears throat> Sadly, the modern American church has adopted the secular teaching of psychology and it has distorted the truth of scripture and of God's character. It is confused distracted and led many Christians astray, encouraging them to place more trust in humanistic ideas rather than in God and his word. So I'm going to read just a very small quote out of the book. If you read the chapter this week, this is what Martha Peace had in there. She said, modern man has reinvented God. He is comfortable with his new God. Many tried to manipulate him as if he were Santa Claus existing to meet their emotional needs. Psychologized man sees himself as needy, but not the good kind of needy. Having been wounded emotionally and driven by unconscious desires and repressed traumas, he is a victim. God is here to serve him and to give him worth. This is taken the truth and turned it upside down. The underlying philosophy of psychology is to dethrone God and elevate man in his place. Rather than teaching man to serve and honor God, God is expected to serve and honor man. And this is the teaching that is just prevalent in our culture. And It's everywhere in our secular culture, but unfortunately, it is all over in the churches as well. And that's why we have people that that call themselves Christian psychologists. I hope you are recognizing that you cannot be, well, okay, be careful what I say here. You cannot have a good understanding of scripture and also embrace psychology because the two are in complete opposition to one another. This is is outright blatant idolatry. So hold on, let me get back to my... uh, So rather than teaching man to serve and honor God, God is expected to serve and honor men. This is outright blatant idolatry. Psychology encourages the worship of self rather than the worship of God. 
There are a couple of aspects of idolatry that I want you to consider just real quick here as we're kind of thinking through the idea of, of idolatry in psychology. Number one, and this isn't on your outline, number one, idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. Well, yeah, we kind of all know that, right? I think it's good for us to keep that in mind, though, as we come to this chapter and we think through what psychology actually is. And number two, idolatry is always focused on getting rather than, uh-oh, my timer went off. I have no idea where I am. How many? 15. Okay, so I got 45 minutes. Okay, not a good idea. I'm sorry. You guys are just having to get used to this, not using that other little timer thing. Okay, so number two, idolatry is always focused on getting rather than giving. Although many forms of idolatry promote some form of giving to the gods, it is always under the pretense of receiving something in return. So, for example, when I was growing up as a little girl in the tribe that my parents were working in, planting a church, the people there worship the spirit of their dead ancestors. That's what they would have called it. And so they did all kinds of certain things when they planted their gardens. And like they had all these different formalities that they did to, to appease the gods, to make the gods happy. So on one hand, you could say, oh, well, they were giving to the gods. But why? Why were they giving to the gods? Because that meant they would receive something back in return. How often do we do that with our own God? I will obey you so that you will give me a good life. I will do what your word says so that you will give me what I want. It's just a form of idolatry. Psychology promotes. Psychology promotes both of those ideas. It has elevated man above God and seeks to get from God by being served by God rather than giving glory and honor and obedience to God. When psychology is embraced, Scripture no longer becomes the basis for final authority of what is true. It is reinterpreted to suit the desires of man, and the character of God is maligned. In our secularized culture, unbelievers want to live without being responsible to God, of course. They want to pursue their own selfish desires apart from a God who would require them to submit to his will. Many aspects of our culture reveal this, of course. For example, like we already looked at what Ken Ham explained, the God of creation has been replaced by what? Evolution. And as Martha Peace explained, psychology has dethroned God and elevated self. Rather than identifying sin as wrong and harmful, secular psychologists, psychiatrists, and therapists have renamed dominating sin patterns, labeling them as if they were diseases, such as alcoholism, anxiety disorder, Mental illness, you hear that all over the place. Mental illness is a really big one we hear all the time. Well, all of these we hear all the time. OCD, bipolar, we hear these terms all the time. And I might just be shaking some of you up right now. That's not my, well, maybe it is kind of my goal. But anyway, (laughs) come talk to me afterward if you're struggling with this. But the point is that this is always the goal, to sabotage the truth and replace it with a lie so that we will live out of the lie instead of living out of the truth of God's word. And you know, like the frog, you remember, I know we've used this analogy before, but the frog in the pot, 
If you put it in there when it's cold, it'll stay there as the water gets hotter and hotter and hotter. We are like that frog in our culture. And so we don't often recognize the ways we are influenced by the lies and the ways we believe the lies and the ways we live out of the lies because we are so steeped in how our culture thinks. Rather than recognizing sin as an offense to a holy God that must be repented of, we are told by psychologists that people are not responsible for their misbehavior and poor conduct because they are what? Victims. Victims of their past, victims of their childhood, victims of their negative circumstances, of abuse and harsh treatment. If you have experienced any of those things, they are traumatic and they are terrible the abuse and things like that. But it is never, it never gives us a license to sin. It is the natural tendency of sinful man to eliminate God from their lives. Unfortunately, many of the godless ideas and philosophies that influence our culture have made their way into the church as well as I've already been saying. When this happens, Christians live much like unbelievers. Their lives become dominated by sin, and the church ceases then to be effective. So as we continue to consider the importance of cultivating attitudes that reflect a transformed heart, because what is the title of our book? Attitudes of a Transformed Heart. We, I would like to look at Paul's response to the Athenians in Acts 17. So if you wouldn't mind to open your Bible and turn to Acts 17. So you might be familiar with the account as it is often referred to as the Mars Hill Sermon. That's where we're going today. You may be wondering, of course, why I would choose this. Because if you know anything about that sermon, Paul was speaking to a very pagan, idolatrous nation. And why am I talking to you guys about that when we're talking about psychology? So how could this relate to our chapter that we just read? So the basic, and here's what I want you to, to consider and to think about. The basic points that Paul uses to address the idolatry the idol-worshiping, unbelieving pagans in Athens are also appropriate for believers who have embraced forms of idolatry. So Paul makes a case, and basically what he does here is he looks at the character of God, and we have five main points that you'll see, but he looks at the character of God, and he introduces this to the Athenians who did not know who the one true God is. The thing is, now they were very, very idolatrous, and this is why Paul addresses them the way he does. But even in our culture, we need the same points. Even in our own Christian hearts that are fighting against idolatry, we need to be reminded of who God is. And the way that Paul describes who God is is appropriate for us as well. So sadly, believers often lose sight of the very things Paul addresses in his speech. There is much we can glean from his instruction. So keep in mind that Paul is not addressing the church in this passage because what I don't want to do here is I don't want to uh, look at the passage and then put my own interpretation on the passage. That's not what I'm trying to do. I want to look at the passage, draw out the truth, and then see how we can apply those truths to our own lives. So there are a few things I want you to see in his address. Notice how he proclaims the character of God. And notice at the end, our very last point, that he calls the people to repentance. What do we do 
when we have idols in our hearts, we must repent. So that's where we're going to end, but for now, let's uh, begin by reading Acts 17. I'm going to start in verse 16 to give us the full context here. So it says, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he was waiting for Timothy and Silas, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar to this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God, so here is his speech then, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought to we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Who is the man? Jesus Christ. So obviously that is a very lengthy passage of scripture and I am very sorry I am not going to be able to get into very much of it and it kills me. You have no idea how I kept cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting. Just this one thing, nope, no time for that either because I really want to get to our main point and our main point is that we must repent of the idols in our hearts. We must repent. And so consequently, I don't have time to dig into all the depths and the riches of all the things that are laid out here. But uh, we do have background that I want to give you. So as I was reading about Athens, all my commentaries described the influential and prestigious city pretty much in the same way. Athens was absolutely amazing. 
In its prime during the 4th and 5th centuries, okay, so that was a few hundred years before Paul has now arrived in Athens. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno had all lived and, ta and taught there. And as you know, they, were, they have been very influential philosophers throughout the ages, <clears throat> even still referred back to. By the time Paul traveled through Athens, it was no longer the most prominent city, having been replaced by the city of, this is interesting, guess which one? Corinth. Chris is teaching us every week. Okay, so Corinth has now replaced that a little bit. <clears throat> so Corinth had replaced the city in both politics and commerce. However, that did not diminish the notability of Athens. It was still a city of wonder in its own rights and has been compared to modern cities like New York or Rome or Paris in its influence, but really even greater than that in the world at that time. So one commentator wrote this, Athens was known the world over for its magnificent art and architecture. The art, however, characteristically portrayed the exploits of the various gods and goddesses of the Greek pantheon. And most of the impressive buildings were temples to pagan gods. So here we have this amazing city, all this architecture, all this art. We have philosophy and knowledge and intellect, all these things going on. But at the very core of everything in this city was absolute and total idolatry. And so all these fantastic buildings and art forms and things like that were all in one way or another related to idols. And this city had so many idols. There are sayings about it, and I probably will get it wrong, so maybe I won't say it, but something about how there were more idols in Athens than rocks. There were just so many idols, so many gods that they worshipped in Athens. So you kind of get the feel for what this city was like. So Paul enters, now we are getting onto your outline, finally. So Paul's response to Athens. So here Paul was in this amazing city, surrounded by the pinnacle of human creativity, intellect, and capability. Yet he wasn't awed by any of the architecture or the art. That right there should cause us to pause for a moment. This center of cultural progress and influence did nothing to wow Paul. On the contrary, he only observed the plethora of idols. This city was devoid of the living God, and he was positively distressed over it. He looked at the city through the spiritual eyes of a man grieved over the lost souls of men. So Paul arrives in Athens that, that's world known in that time uh, for how amazing it was. And Paul is not amazed by any of it. He looks at it and he sees the idols. He sees all these people, thousands of people who are enslaved in idolatry and on their way to hell. So number one, he was provoked by the idolatry. The word provoke means to be roused to anger. Paul was single-mindedly focused on the glory of God and his gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. The number of idols in the city indicated that the people had no concern for the glory of God. 
And this caused Paul great distress, even being roused to a righteous anger. This provocation resulted in what? What did Paul always do? He evangelized. Paul could not look around at such godless, idolatrous place such as this without proclaiming the glory of God and his gift of salvation. He was just compelled to bring the truth to a city just filled with lies. So he did what he always did whenever he went into a new city. And what was that? He began evangelizing. So I just have to stop for just a second right here and bring in some application because it distresses me that we so often do not have the same attitude of Paul. We are so often awed by our culture, the creativity, the spectacles. Do you remember that book? If you were here for the ladies' brunch, I had that little book by Tony Ranke, uh, Spectacles, I think is just the title of it. Fen, what? Competing. Thank you. I knew there was another word. Competing spectacles. That's an important word. But that's essentially what has happened is we have begun to be distracted by the spectacles in our culture. And we do not have the attitude of Paul oftentimes that we need to have to look at the, um, the amazing God that we have. Instead, we look at life from a temporal perspective. This is to our great shame. We fall right into the trap of the devil by focusing on the temporal rather than the spiritual. That, oh, that we would have eyes and hearts like the Apostle Paul. That we would not be wowed by amazing cities and by the sin that goes on there. Recently, Craig and I went to California. And anyways, long story short, we ended up having to take a different flight to get home because remember the hurricane in California? <laughs> well, they canceled all the flights. So anyways, which wasn't really a hurricane. But anyways, so we had to fly out of Nevada instead and we flew out of Vegas. And as we're going through Vegas, I'm just thinking we have all this, you know, every, everything is supposed to be impressive in Vegas. And it's more impressive at night and we were in there in the daytime. But the point is, why would we look at that and be impressed? Why would we go on vacation to Vegas? We should go on an evangelism tour to Vegas. That's the heart of Paul, not vacationing and all this evil and enjoying stuff like that. And I'm not saying that you guys are doing that. I'm just reminding you so that we keep a single a single focused view on what is important. We always need to be reminded. So number two, he was reasoning in the synagogue and the marketplace. And this is what Paul always did was to go first to the synagogue. So reasoning means to converse, argue, discuss, and really in this context, drawing arguments from the scriptures. So that's what Paul was doing as he was conversing with these philosophers and people there. As Paul conversed with those in the synagogue and in the marketplace, he began to draw their curiosity. And you already kind of saw that as we were reading the passage, that they began to, to wonder who he was and what he was talking about. So then we have B on your outline, the Athenians' response to Paul. The Athenians loved new ideas and new thoughts, and Paul was a curiosity to them, proclaiming Jesus Christ and the resurrection They'd never heard of that. Some people were intrigued 
and were curious, wanted more answers. And other people just thought he was stupid. What are you talking about? You're just foolish. So number one, the philosophers were conversing with him. So there were two main groups of philosophical thought in Athens at that time when Paul was there. So A is Epicureans. The first group, that's who they were. They were called the Epicureans. They had a mindset along the lines of live for today, for tomorrow you die. And that's kind of my own little, you know, more modern summary of what they believed. This would be similar to how modern day evolutionists think. Everything is caused by random chance and there is nothing beyond our existence here. Escape pain and pursue happiness. That was pretty much what they were constantly striving to do. Seek pleasure from this life and do what makes you feel good. We can see a lot of similarities to our own culture, can't we? And then we have B, the Stoics. So John Polhill, one of the commentators that I was reading, describes the Stoics like this. He says they were pantheists, believing that the ultimate divine principle was to be found in all of nature, including human beings. Humans realize their fullest potential when they lived by reason. So by reason, for example, the divine principle within them, which linked them with the gods and nature, could they, through this, excuse me, I, I need to start again. So by reason, for example, the divine principle within them, which linked them with the gods and nature, through that they could discover ultimate truth for themselves. The Stoics generally had a rather high ethic but and put great stock on self-sufficiency. So essentially, to put this on a little bit more easy to understand, the Stoics believed that God was in everything, um, which we would say would be more like Eastern religion today, where God's in me, God's in you, God's in the chair, God's in the, the ceiling, uh, God's in the tree. Just all of everything is spiritual, which, of course, was very wrong. So F.F. F. Bruce, another commentator, sums up the two schools of thought by saying, Stoicism and Epicureanism represent alternative attempts in pre-Christian paganism to come to terms with life, especially in times of uncertainty and hardship. What is psychology? It is... Uh, essentially uh, an attempt to come to terms with life, especially in times of uncertainty and hardship, apart from God. Very similar. As Paul conversed with the people in the city, they began, of course, to label him. So Paul, number two, Paul was accused of being an idle babbler. And this actually was really demeaning. The expression means to be a seed picker. It came from the image of birds in a barnyard pecking indiscriminately at whatever seeds they found. It referred to someone who picked up scraps of ideas here and there and passed them off as profundity with no depth of understanding whatever. They didn't understand what Paul was saying. They didn't understand what he was presenting as far as Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And so they just thought, oh, well, he's just picked up this idea and that idea. And, you know, to the Stoics, this would be a really big deal because what was so important to them? Their, abil their ability to reason. And so they were looking at Paul going, well, clearly he can't reason anything. So they just thought he was being foolish. Well, then he was also B, 
being a proclaimer of strange deities. They were also accusing him of that. The Epicureans did not believe in life after death, and the Stoics believed only the soul survived death. So neither group understood Paul when he spoke of Jesus and the resurrection. In fact, they assumed he was speaking of more gods. Essentially, they were projecting their own polytheistic ideas onto Paul. So they thought when Paul came proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection, they didn't know what the resurrection was. And so they just assumed that that was another God. And so in their very polytheistic understanding of of life and gods and all of that, they just assumed Paul was now presenting two more gods they could add to their collection. So number three... Paul was then brought before the council of the Areopagus or Mars Hill. And really what he was brought there is he was brought to stand before the court, not because he was on trial, but because this is where they came to to basically introduce these new ideas, these new ways of thinking. And so they wanted him to come and, and to sit before these very important intellectual people and basically explain what he was talking about. Can you imagine So Paul gets to go and basically present the gospel to some of the most influential people in the city of Athens. That's amazing. And you know he loved it. So he was simply expected to explain before the intellectuals who made up the court that he was what he was discussing and proclaiming. The people, obviously, as I said, they were confused by what he had been asserting and wanted a more thorough hearing. Since Athens was the seat of intellectualism, the Athenians were always interested in new ideas and new thoughts. They wanted to hear what he had to say, to hear his explanation and defense of his position. So Paul used the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. But I want you to notice something. He does not begin with Christ. Because he had been proclaiming Christ, right? And the resurrection, and they didn't, they didn't get it. So when Paul got the opportunity to stand up there and present the gospel, he started with creation. He begins with God. He explains the gospel from a perspective they can understand. He doesn't present it from a Jewish perspective, but rather from a Greek perspective, even quoting their own poets as he speaks to basically make a connection with them as he's doing this. Can't help but to be reminded that what he says, I become all things to all men so I might win more. That's exactly what Paul was doing here. He seeks to relate to them on their level while in no way compromising the truth of who God is and their responsibility before God. So Paul's message was how to know the unknown God. So the main theme is God as creator and the proper worship of this creator God. The language often has the ring of Greek philosophy, for Paul was attempting to build what bridges he could to reach the Athenian intellectuals. The underlying thought remains thoroughly biblical. So that was a quote from from a commentator. So number one, the unknown God, and he is basically making a reference to their ignorance. 
because, of course, remember, they love new thoughts, they love new ideas, they love to know, they love to reason. And so bringing up this idea of being ignorant would have been a little bit of a jab, really. But he didn't want to entirely um, alienate them, so he was still careful in how he said that. But look at verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So here they were saying, we're admitting we don't know who this unknown God is. And so he uses that thing right there as the jumping off point to say, I am going to explain to you what you don't know. So immediately that's going to perk up their ears so they're listening F.F. Bruce explained, the altars to the unknown gods provided Paul with this point of contact, with the text for what he had to say. This God whom they worshipped, while confessing that they did not know him, was the God whom he now proposed to make known to them. So they're saying that they worship this God that they don't even know. So Paul's going to say, okay, I know who that unknown God is, and I'm going to tell you about him. And this needs to be the beat of our heart. As we come to people, as we share the gospel, we need to proclaim who God is. What did Ken Ham and R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur say as we looked at the beginning of this? What is the problem in our churches today? We do not know who God is. Just like the Athenians did not know who God is. And this is where Paul starts. Let me explain to you who God is. And Rachel, I think, I didn't have a chance to go back and listen to her message yet, but that's what she was talking about last week. Who is this God? And that's where we're going today. Who is this God? Because if we don't understand who God is, we will believe anything. And we're going to be deceived by psychology. The first step in in addressing idolatry is knowing God beginning with salvation, and then growing in your knowledge of him as a believer. So number two, the creator God. So Paul presents God as the creator. The unknown God reigns over everything. So verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So Paul begins at the beginning He begins with God, who is the creator. God made everything from nothing. He existed before everything, and as a result, all creation must answer to him as the creator. Not only did the Stoics and Epicureans struggle to understand God as the creator, many modern thinkers of our day also deny God as the creator. Evolution has been taught and promoted to such a degree that even within many churches, evolution is accepted and taught. If we are to know and understand God as he has revealed himself in scripture, we must first embrace him as God, the creator. Because if he creates and we are the creation, we are responsible to him and he makes the rules. So number three, the sovereignty of God 
Humanity has a responsibility to God. So, verse 26. And he made, God made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So this is the central point of Paul's message with really two main points. And there's a lot we could draw out of those couple of verses. But um, we're just going to look at a couple of main ones. Number one, he claims God's sovereignty over humanity. And number two, man is responsible to God as the creator. So God has created every person and he has determined the time and place for each person and each nation's existence. God has determined everything from from before time. The purpose for this is so that each person can search for God and find him because God can be found. So I don't have time to go in and really dig that out and help you really understand what's going on here. But basically what he is, what, what Paul is saying is that God has appointed the time and place for every nation for the purpose that they should be able to seek for God and find him. So let me explain that. In Jeremiah 29.3, it says this, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God can be found. And he has proclaimed who he is through the creation. And is it any wonder that Satan has influenced our world and our culture to such a degree that we are so distracted by the spectacles that we do not see who God is in his creation, which would would and should drive people to search for God. That's what creation should do. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Each person is responsible to search for God for two reasons. First, God has placed within each person a conscience. And second, God has made himself evident in creation. So when humanity is distracted from the glory of God in creation, it silences one of the ways man might search for him. So I would just say, on a little side note application here, mamas of young children, be careful as you are raising your precious babies. And as they get older and they they are growing and learning and experiencing life around them, do not allow the spectacles of this world to dominate the things that they love above the things that God has shown in creation and in what God is doing. And I would say even even taking that even further, do not allow them to be distracted away from the church, away from God's people. This is so important. God reveals himself in his creation, not, not unto salvation. We can only be saved through Jesus Christ, right? Because 
Only as we come to God through Christ can we truly accept, or, um, accept Christ for salvation, placing our faith and trust in him. But what creation does is it, it should cause a curiosity that would drive us to seek for him. And then we also have the conscience as well. And the conscience convicts us and should also cause us to realize there is more than just us. So Romans 1, 19 and 20 says this, because that which is known about God is evident, where? Do you know the verse? Within them, the conscience. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are what? Without excuse. Just like Paul did, worldly people are always trying to answer the question of the purpose of life. Their need is God and their purpose can only be found in God. And that is exactly what Paul is telling them. The God of this world, Satan, endeavors to keep humanity from having their needs met in knowing and obeying God and in finding their purpose in God. One of the ways this has been accomplished is through psychology. It has provided convincing solutions for circumstantial, relational, and behavioral difficulties apart from God. It has influenced people with evolutionary ideas and directed them away from the truth of Scripture. Unfortunately, the church has sought to help people also by using psychology and Scripture trying to bring them together. This is called integration. So we would refer to somebody as an integrationist, somebody who mixes the two together. Often they call themselves Christian psychologists or Christian counselors. The difficulty with this approach is that psychology and scripture are fundamentally opposed to each other. You cannot fully obey scripture if you are also advocating and adhering to the philosophies of psychology. If we embrace the teaching of psychology, scripture will be impotent to help because it has been diluted with contradicting humanistic ideas. And this fires me up because I see it in the counseling room. I see it in people's lives and it destroys lives. We have got to come to the word of God and not look to humanistic ideas. Only as we put off secular ideas and teaching and recognize that we are responsible to a sovereign God through obedience to scripture will we find hope for the unbeliever through salvation and change for the believer through sanctification. So then number four, the worship of God. And really Paul gives a criticism of idolatry here. So verse 28, for in him, in God, we live and move and exist as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. So here, Paul directly addresses the issue of idolatry. The divine nature cannot be like gold or silver or stone, like the gods that the Athenians had fashioned all over the city. 
The concept of God was not invented in the mind of man to be shaped and molded into images that they could set up and then bow down to. The true living God gives and sustains life, and thus his creation is in subjection to him to accomplish his will. See, it's not about God serving us as psychology would have us believe. It is about us serving God. What does he desire? What does he want? What is his will? And then I bow my will to his so that his will is accomplished. In gratitude for the life God has provided, the only right response for his creation is to worship. This is what our rightful response is, is to worship him. And we worship in truth, which is the word of God. And we worship in obedience as we, as we walk by faith according to his word and submit our lives to the truth of his word. When we reflect on the Athenian culture, we may view it as an uncivilized and uncultured people group. Putting one's hope and trust in idols would be considered unsophisticated and heathen to our way of thinking, right? But our culture is just as idolatrous as the citizens of Athens. Perhaps we have eliminated the physical idols of gold and stone, but we certainly worship idols. Perhaps the most common is the idol of self. Consider the concept of relativism. It certainly involves the worship of self by promoting the idea that there is no absolute truth. If there is no absolute truth, then everyone can have their own truth and no one is accountable to anybody else, especially a God. Instead of searching for absolute truth, we create our own truth to suit our own desires, our own preferences, or felt needs, or whatever pleases us. And as we have already discovered, psychology lines up nicely with this way of thinking. So Craig and I were recently watching uh, uh, Matt Walsh's documentary. We had never watched um, What is a Woman? And so we were watching that. And even though I know that the culture embraces this idea of relativism, if you've seen that, you know what I'm talking about. But the way that people are describing your truth versus my truth, and there is no absolute truth, it's mind-blowing to, to really see people try and explain this and understand it. It's ridiculous. You can't even have a decent conversation because it's so circular. It, doesn't, it goes nowhere. It is impossible for them to come to the bottom line, the absolute reality, because they truly believe everyone should be able to have their own truth. So what is at the root of this kind of thinking? Me. My desires. Self. If I make my own rules, I am only accountable to me. There is no God to whom I must submit or conform my will. This is the epitome of idolatry. Worshiping anything other than the one true God is idolatry. The problem is that we are often blind to our own idols. We can look at other cultures and criticize them, wondering why they would worship other gods, but we fail to recognize we have our own idols that we worship. So do you remember the account of Jacob and Rachel when they left Laban and they were traveling back to Jacob's homeland and Rachel stole an idol from Laban. I've always looked at that and thought, what a ridiculous thing to do. Of course,
course she knows that idol has no power. But as I was thinking about what I was studying today, I realized how often we don't take the little, like, actual stone or wooden god, but how often do we take our own idols and stuff it, sit on it like she was doing, and hide it and take it with us? We do that just as well. It's just that it looks different. To Rachel, it made sense to do that. To the Athenians, it made sense to worship the myriad of idols sprinkled throughout the city. And to us, it makes sense to worship self, believing we are victims and deserve better than what we have, believing other people owe us and we are at the center of our own universe, able to choose what makes us happy. This is the basis of psychology. I am a victim. I have been mistreated and hindered in my pursuit of happiness. I am ultimately my own God. We certainly have idols, don't we? And just like the Athenians to whom Paul proclaimed the need to worship the one true God, we also need to set our idols of self, victimhood, and expectation of happiness. And instead, we need to pursue the worship of God and the surrender of our lives to him. So number five, the judgment of God, repent or be judged. So verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should, what? Repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him, Christ, from the dead. So in response to this unknown God whom Paul has now made known to the Athenians, Paul calls them to repentance He explains that a day is coming when God will judge the world through Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead. Uh, John Polhill says, only one course was open, repentance, a complete turnabout from their false worship and a turning to God. There is only one option for those who practice idolatry, and that is repentance. Of course, Paul is calling the Athenians, who were pagan idolaters. He's calling them to repentance unto salvation. That's where it begins. First and foremost, we repent unto salvation. But even for believers who have idols in their own hearts, our response as well must be to repent of those things. As believers, we don't often or we often do rather neglect to evaluate our hearts correctly. We fail to recognize the sinister pride that drives our self-serving desires. And we fail to diagnose our idols as a result. We have embraced the lie that we must have our needs met. It's, It's pervasive. It's everywhere in our culture. We must have our needs met. We have also embraced the lie that we deserve to have good things or the things that we want. We have believed the lie that we are victims when life doesn't go the way we think it should. And consider how often we embrace the idea that we are victims and deserve better. We're victims in our marriages because our husbands don't treat us perfectly, don't love us the way we think they should. We're victims in our parenting because our children don't obey us, love us, thank us, visit us, whatever it is. We're victims in our work environment because management doesn't appreciate the work that we do, the time we spend, the sacrifice we make. We're victims because our parents don't appreciate us. They don't thank us or they treat us badly. 
We're victims because we have ongoing health issues. We're victims because we experience a debilitating injury. We're victims because our financial situation has declined. We're victims because we're single and we want to be married. We're victims because we don't have kids and we want kids. Like, it's everywhere in our culture. And that is idolatry. It is putting me at the center of everything. And and the world should revolve around me and give me everything that I want. And what do we do with idolatry? We must repent. And I will tell you what, this is not a one and done. We recognize that we have these idols. And then what do we do? We must come before the Lord and identify them. And we need to repent before the Lord over these idols. And you know what? When we get up tomorrow morning and we have the same wrong thinking because it's so ingrained in who we are, and so we wake up eager to worship our idols again, not even realizing it, but that's what's happening because our culture has been so steeped into who we are. And when we recognize it, we repent and we put off our wrong ways of thinking. We put off that idolatrous way of thinking. And instead, we look into the word and we learn to align our minds with the truth of God's word. And the key in between the two of those things is repentance because it is sin to think that we are the center of our universe. And I think a lot of times we do not think about our idolatry to the degree that we must in the fact that it is sin. And as we think about moving into this book and having a heart that does reflect what pleases the Lord, that we do have hearts that are transformed, you know what? It's not going to happen if we do not quickly recognize our sin and repent of it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the hope that we have in it. Lord, I pray that um, as we go to our groups, that our discussion would be honoring and glorifying to you. In your name we pray. Amen.